All right. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us once again on another episode of Mormon Discussions. I'm your guest host today, Ryan Booth, and uh, we've got a bit of a role reversal. Today, I'm going to be interviewing someone, someone that you probably know very well. His name is Bill Real. Ryan, how are you? Doing all right. How are you, Bill? Awesome. I'm glad to, to have this kind of little switch here where rather than me interviewing somebody, somebody's going to sit down and ask me some hard questions. Yep, yep, yep. Today we're gonna we're gonna talk about some I think some really good juicy meaty stuff. So a while ago, a few months ago, you uh, published uh, a, a podcast talking about your bad days, the days when you, uh, you're not doing well, and that was very successful, wasn't it? It was. It got quite a bit of feedback, way more than I expected. the The night that I released it, I sat there listening to it as kind of a final edit. I thought to myself. I don't know how this is going to be received, and I actually had the thought of just just setting it off to the side and not using it, and I said, no, let's go for it. So I published it, and uh, within just a few hours, emails started rolling in. Uh, most episodes probably get two, three, maybe four emails at most. Uh, this one brought in probably in total both the Facebook comments and emails probably close to 100. Wow. That's, 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 that's really great. And so, and, and a lot of the, re- the responses were pretty positive. Yeah, they were. I had one person who said the, the things that I talked about raised doubts in their mind, but to a T, every other person essentially knew the stuff already and was thinking the same kind of things and had their own bad days and, and really related to, uh, to the episode. Well, that's great. And so, uh, in in the spirit of exploring our bad days, and in maybe helping other people explore their bad days and what their bad days are about, we're going to talk a little bit about that that podcast today. Awesome. So let's let's start. Let's let's kind of. I'd like to start by turning it on its head. What is a good day like? What's a, what's a good Sunday? A good day at church or a good day of activity in the church like for you? Right. And I'll even take it outside the church for a moment. If if I'm through the week, because I'm always just thinking about Mormonism, I'm always online looking up articles and things, trying to come up with new ideas for new episodes, new directions to take things. Um, if I go on, let's say, BYU speeches, and I listen to a really good talk in the church, that, that throws in some nuance. Um, those kinds of things help me to have a, a good day. And so I know recently, for instance, I was, I found an article from a brother Fluman from the LDS Business College, and he wrote an article about faith and history, and his approach was very nuanced. And, and that, sh- you know, for me kind of shows this positive, uh, effort within the church by at least some individuals to, to kind of move the ball forward. And those type of things help me to have a great day. Um, in the church, I guess I would say the days that are really good are the days where somebody gives a sacrament talk and and it reaches me. Maybe it talks about both grace and works rather than just obedience. Or I'll be in a Sunday school lesson and somebody else in the class will raise a a question that shows that they're thinking deeper about the issues. That helps me to, to have a good day. But most importantly, Ryan, uh, it's the days when someone simply validates uh, who I am and, and where I'm coming from. And so maybe I'll offer a thought and someone will say, Hey, ver- thank you very much for saying that. I was, I was wondering how we should approach that issue. And that helped me to clarify my own thoughts. So, so feeling validated, uh, to a large respect, I think helps my days in church to be what I would call good days. That makes a lot of sense. So let's talk about the frustrations. Uh, I, I noticed in reviewing this podcast, listening to it a couple of times that, uh, you feel 
Like there are times at church where you can't have what you call a real discussion about problems and in the church or church history. So, uh, Bill, what, what, what's this real discussion that you're talking about? So for me, a real discussion is going to take lots of things into account. One would be, as we look around at the general membership of the church, most of them have been taught as well as have accepted a very simple narrative of, of the gospel, of church history, of church's theology, of its doctrine. And that simple way of kind of seeing things it really doesn't, as you well know, as lots of listeners will know, it really doesn't work super well once you begin to dive deeper into into the church, and especially its history. And so for me, a real discussion is other people in the ward who are capable, uh, who have the ability, who have the awareness of some of the other issues that are going on, to have a conversation about how nuanced the church is. And I'm going to use that word probably a whole bunch tonight, but but. The, if we look at certain, I'll just give one example. So you'll hear oftentimes in a lesson about apostasy, they'll talk about Thomas Marsh and he left over milk and strippings. And obviously realizing the deeper history, it's not that simple. Wouldn't it be nice if we could get away from thinking about people leaving the church over these really silly, simple, petty reasons, which I agree, some members probably do leave over that, but to recognize that oftentimes, as uh, as President Uchtdorf said, it's just not that simple and so I think in every discussion we have in the church, there's room to to throw in some milk and not just have meat. To be honest, I'm at the point where I'm lactose intolerant, <laughs> and uh, and I often find churches just all milk. And uh, where I'm at, I need some meat. And so for a real discussion, there's got to be some meat in there. Okay. So why, why do you think there's so much milk, as you put it? Why why is it that there, uh, having a real discussion, as you put it, can be so difficult? It's a it's a good question. Um, as I look at the church, I realize that in some ways it probably teaches to what we'll say is the lowest common denominator, the, the new convert, the, the person just returning from inactivity. And, and so in some ways the lessons do need to be simple and basic so that they can reach those individuals. I, I certainly am aware of members in my own ward who are newer members and if things become too deep or complicated, they're, they're lost and it goes over their head. And so I, I, I recognize that at some level they have to do that. I, I often think too that part of the reason why the church tends to, to just throw out a lot of milk. And I think, I think this has some merit to it is that the church has been hesitant to really want to share its deeper history. In fact, I think Elder Snow has said on several occasions that the church is only now being really transparent, assuming that in the past it hasn't always been transparent. And, and I think its history is somewhat difficult, and it's it's not an easy thing to kind of tackle that. And so sometimes maybe they just think it's best just to leave it out. Okay. So what I'm understanding is that that's why the manuals are written the way they are. That's why maybe the lessons are approached the way they are. But when, when somebody like you raises his hand or her hand and asks a question that would probably provoke what you would call a real discussion. Uh, why is it that sometimes there's some tension there or some resistance? Well, I think many members are unaware of the history. And so just this past Sunday, we had a, a high councilman giving a lesson for ward conference. Our ward conference was, was this past week. And the, the high councilman was giving a lesson about priesthood. And he went off on a tangent. He started talking about how non-member uh, 
non-member fathers could give their children a father's blessing, and that would be completely legitimate. And then that somehow led into Mary Fielding Smith, and and he he shared the story, and it wasn't really accurate, but he shared the story about her laying her hands on an oxen and blessing it to be healed, and it got up and and carried the handcart the rest of the way, and. He said, see there, there's a woman who, who used a prayer of faith, but it wasn't priesthood. And so I raised my hand and I said, you know, guys, uh, and I'm not trying to, to stir up trouble or anything, but just from a historical standpoint, standpoint, I don't know if any of you are aware or not, but sisters gave blessings of healing and anointing early on in the church. And they were actually encouraged and authorized by Joseph Smith to do that. Whether it was priesthood or not, I don't know, but it certainly is more than just a prayer of faith. And the teacher's jaw just dropped. And, uh, and it was obvious that he had never heard that before. He was extremely uncomfortable. Um, and luckily, a member of the state presidency sitting right in front of me shook his head up and down, indicating that what I was saying was true. The teacher, because he was caught off guard, didn't want to go into detail, but he, he simply just sidestepped the issue and just moved on. Again, it's, it's indicative that a lot of members of the church really aren't capable at that moment where they're caught off guard saying, hey, let's talk about that. Share some more thoughts on that. I, I've never heard that before. You know, the approach you and me would take, likely if someone did something like that, would we would say, hey, I've never heard that before. It's, you know, share some more on that on that issue. Uh, let me get some more of your perspective. But in the church, and, and I think human nature too, we don't tend to do that. We tend to kind of, uh-oh, I've never heard that before. That's risky. I don't know where to take it from here. I'm going to just sidestep it. So is that why you feel like... Uh People don't always react in a kind way when the kind of... One of the words you used a lot was the rosy-colored narrative. You know, the rosy-colored narrative we use to describe church history or certain events and maybe even the scriptures. And you talked about how people don't always react to that well. Do you feel that's why? Why is that? Well, I think... Yeah, I think... I think the younger generation, for the most part, handles it well. If I just use my uh, ward as as anecdotal evidence, I look around in, in the generation, maybe the 40 and under crowd. They tend to be thankful for new things being brought up. They tend to be uh, interested as discussions take kind of a new twist or turn. But the older generation uh, tends to be somewhat resistant to that. I know Terrell Givens once said with uh, his interview on Mormon Stories, he's, he he. He told John Delaney, he said, uh, you know, if a, if a primary kid learns that Joseph Smith translated with a rock and a hat, he'll essentially be excited and thrilled and find the lesson exciting. If a 50-year-old man learns for the first time that that's how Joseph Smith translated, he'll just think that he's been lied to and something doesn't sound right. And I think that plays into it. I think a lot of the older crowd... And again, this, this, maybe this episode will be totally offensive to anybody listening who's over 40, and I'm really sorry for that. But I think the older crowd, a large chunk of them have grown up in the church completely unaware of the deeper history. And, and so it certainly poses a problem if, if I or somebody else raises their hand and tries to kind of bring some, some historical facts into the discussion because maybe something they're talking about is, is a little skewed or a little off track. So let's talk about things being skewed and a little off track. Uh, it, when when you made your podcast about your bad days, one of the things you said was, sometimes there aren't any answers I find convincing. And you, you repeated that idea several times, saying that you feel that sometimes you have to accept the weaker message, that maybe uh, an apologist or somebody who's speaking on, uh, for the church 
makes an argument, and then you hear an anti-Mormon make an argument, and you have you say you feel like if you're being objective, you feel like in this case the anti-Mormon is is maybe sounding at least in the moment more convincing. Why does that bother you? But why does that yeah, bother, why does me? That bother you? Because we've grown up in the church being told that the really true correct testimony is an I know testimony. And I know means that I've got a, a level of certitude, a level, a level of, of knowledge above simply having faith or hoping. And in the church, having kind of that, that certitude, when you begin to realize that, wait a minute, there really is no certitude. There's evidence on both sides. There's, there's weight to both ends of the spectrum. All of a sudden that just kind of gets taken out from under you and, and yet you go to church every Sunday and everybody else is still living in that I know, I know, I know paradigm. Even the 14-year-old the kid gets up and says, I know with every fiber of my being. And yet here I am, right? I've, I've, I've read all there is to read, essentially. I've looked through things. I've prayed. I've pondered. I've read scriptures multiple times. I've sought out answers on, on issues. I've tried to be a truth seeker. And yet when I, the more I read, the more I look at things, the more I realize I have less knowledge and more hope and faith and and uh, so on some level i think it's just the 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 uncomfortableness of our culture in allowing people like me who just have faith or hope to be seen as as just as much in the mix as everyone else at another point you you'd say that uh you you kind of ask a question which i think if it were written, would also have an exclamation mark. You say, why does the church have to be this messy? Why do I have to work so hard? Have you had any thoughts or insights into these two questions since you made that Bad Days Up podcast? Have I? So let me, let me think about this for a minute. So as, as we talk about why the church has to be so messy and, and if there's any kind of realization that I come to, you know, I think as I look at just life in general, we like, I'll just use marriage as an example. We go into marriage thinking everything's going to be just beautiful. I even, my parents love each other. They're still together. They're happily married, but they certainly had fights and arguments uh, throughout my childhood. And some of them were so bad that I looked at them and I'm like, when I get married, I'm not going to have any of this. And we think that life for us is just going to be, be this beautiful thing that we can completely control and I think kind of relating that to the church, I've just have to come to grips with the fact that I, I have way less control than I thought I did over, over those things that are outside of myself. And so for me, the realization in the idea that it's messy is, is simply coming to grips with the idea that I don't control things the way I thought I did. And that on some level, I simply have to kind of, um, sit back and roll with some of the punches. I don't know if that's what you're looking for, Ryan, but but as I've thought about the episode, Our Bad Days, I know lots of members out there are struggling, and I know that if I look at where I was four years ago, seven years ago, there was a point where I was really, really having a hard time, and I find that generally the days are better now. Why is that? Because I'm learning to roll with those punches better. So talk to me about control. What do you mean by control? Well, going back to the marriage thing, you think that when you get married that that you have control over whether you completely get along with your spouse and whether both people are always happy. And yet there are times where I would go three or four months thinking everything was perfect. And one day my wife would just look at me and go, you know, I'm really having a hard time with you over the last few months. Do you not see this? 
and, and of course, you know, for whatever reason, maybe it's just because I'm a man, I, I wouldn't see it. And just realizing I don't have control over it. When I look at the church in that same light, realizing that the church teaches to maybe the lowest common denominator, realizing that some leaders in church history had a stronger bias towards hiding hard facts or keeping them out of the the sight of some members, realizing that as the church tries to balance different issues, that perhaps where I see things is not always going to have the leadership saying, you know, Brother Real, you're right on this. And it's just learning that that within the church that things are going to happen, things are going to occur that may not be the way I want them to work out. But again, I don't have complete control of that. Does the relationship lose value then? Um, in some regards, I, I feel like it does. And, and maybe maybe that's not the answer you're looking for. I, I know that in marriage, it's weird, right? I look at my marriage and I say, the more complicated the two of us are, and yet we still build off of each other and become more united how awesome is that? And yet that same experience within the church, the more I learn about the church's flaws, the more I learn about its its weaknesses, and and the more I realize that on some level, some of that is intentional towards me or towards the membership of the church, um, I get kind of the opposite feeling sometimes. Sometimes I grow... I grow more frustrated. Um, just, you know, yesterday, the the church had the uh, special conference in regards to religious freedom and uh, in the LGBT issues. And Elder Oaks in that in that uh, conference, or maybe it was even afterwards in the Q&A, made the comment that the, the church and the brethren are not in the business of apologizing or asking for apologies. And yet I look at some things that have occurred in the church, and I think they absolutely deserve an apology. And so that resistance to doing things my way, uh, I think sometimes can be frustrating. So it sounds to me like just as anyone who's been married for longer than a year will tell you that the, the relationship changes and your attitude towards the, uh, in this case, spouse, changes. And so it sounds to me like your relationship, the way you interact with the church, the way you view the church interaction with you has changed. It has. I I used to see the church as the perfect entity it was it was the lord's only true and living church with which he was well pleased and to me that meant that it did things perfectly in the in spite of the fact that the world uh didn't and the world had turbulence the church was this this solid rock that could be depended on what i've had to come to accept in sometimes scratching and clawing is the fact that the church is in many ways I would say deeply flawed. And, and again, that may not ring like a positive thing to some, but, but that acknowledgement that the church is deeply flawed, just as I am, just as my wife is, just as our marriage is in some ways, um, the church, the church is not this perfect entity that I once held it to be. Yeah. So you referred to the fact that religions can sometimes go bad. Referring back again to the episode that you published about our bad days. You seem concerned that a few good, warm feelings can produce blind faith. And because of a few warm feelings, people go forward blindly. Can you expand on this? Talk, talk to me a little bit about this. Yeah, so in the episode, I mentioned a video that was on YouTube. And if you, if you play the video, essentially it starts off with a 
fundamentalist sect of the LDS Church, a, a sect that still practices polygamy. It might have been Warren Jeff's uh, group. And there's this sister who's bearing her testimony. They still have testimony meetings just like, like we do. Just like us, yeah. Yeah, and so in their testimony meetings, here's this lady standing up there, and she is bearing her testimony essentially in the exact same way that most of our membership does, that she knows that the Lord has led her, the Holy Ghost has borne witness, that the church is true. The video goes on to talk about it from uh, the aspect of maybe six or seven other uh, faiths, both within Christianity, outside of Christianity, even cults that ended up with people uh, killing themselves, such as Heaven's Gate. And in, in each of these clips, these people talk about their faith as if they've received the exact same spiritual witness that I had about the LDS church. And so for me and for many who have doubts, the moment we come in contact with this idea that my testimony, why is my testimony any more valid to me than theirs is to them? And that all of a sudden I can, I can see that my testimony doesn't have any kind of special validation to it then it allows me to kind of set it off to the side and, and look at the church from other angles. And I think for many of us who have doubts, that's what we've done. It's not that we've disregarded our spiritual testimony, but we have recognized that w- we've asked ourselves the question, why should I trust my testimony and not trust the lady from the Warren Jeffs group who is who is bearing her testimony the exact same way? What makes me right and her wrong? And once you throw that that spiritual testimony that, and again, we're talking about those that are warm, fuzzy feelings, the hair raising up on the back of your neck, um, intelligence flowing into your mind, a burning in the bosom. Uh, those kinds of ideas are shared similarly across various faiths and religions, including those that no if, ands, or buts do harm uh, to others. So the, does that make the that a person's testimony lose value? <sighs> In, in my eyes, in some ways, it does, right? When the, when the 15 year old stands up and says, I know the church is true. I, I used to look at them and go, man, awesome. They've got a testimony. But now I listen to them and my first thought is, you know, they don't even understand. They don't, they're not even aware that Joseph Smith got, you know, sealed to a 14 year old. How can they stand up there and say they know? Um, in some ways it really has hurt how I see my testimony and how I see the testimony of others. Now, you talked, you, you said that there are times when you feel like a hypocrite because you go back and forth between faith and doubt. Has that feeling of hypocrisy alleviated any since, uh, since you last talked to us about your bad days? Yeah, a little more so, only because I decided after that episode to take a bigger step towards just being authentic Publicly, and what I mean by that is, generally, when I go into church, there there will be people who will ask me how I'm doing, and I'll just tell them I'm fine, even if I'm not fine. Uh, there will be times where somebody will ask me a church question, and I will give an oversimplified answer simply because I don't want others to be aware of the things I think about, the things I'm I'm struggling with in regards to faith. But since that episode, I've tried to make an effort to be a little bit more myself. And so I think as more people have become kind of aware of where I stand, those who choose can certainly retreat further away from me. But on some level, others have chosen to to get closer and to respect and, and validate and honor uh, where I'm at and, and who I am. 
And along those lines, there, there are some times where you said, I'm isolated. I'm the, sometimes you said, I feel like I'm the only one at church with his eyes open. This seems to be a really big issue for you. You, you repeated the, that phrase three different times. So t- talk, talk to me about that isolation that, that a person feels when a person is going through a crisis of faith. Yeah, you know, the, you, as, you, as you're going through the struggle, right? So first off, doubt doesn't have, at least it used to up until maybe the last year or so since you know Elder Holland has talked about it. Elder uh, U- President Uchtdorf has said the church has made mistakes and, and that even those, regardless of your testimony, you're wanted here. So the church has in some ways changed its rhetoric around the issue of doubt. But let's just back up 12 months. The, the idea of doubt is a negative in our church culture. We have set up again so much that testimonies are I know that if someone goes up and says, I really don't know, I just hope the church is true, we see them as less than in comparison to those who know with every fiber of their being. And so that idea of doubt having a negative stigma on it, for those who have questions, I would guess at least half of them are completely silent in the three-hour block because they simply don't uh, want to let others kind of come into their comfort zone and realize that they're struggling. So the first one there is that that people who have doubts are silent and feel feel marginalized simply by the fact that they don't feel comfortable speaking up. The other couple of things is, one, if you do speak up, you can easily be seen as a critic. I've had numerous times where I've raised the idea or thrown out a historical fact not to not to stir the pot, but to simply kind of correct the general direction that a discussion was going where it was it was missing it was missing out because it was it was skewed not having those facts involved and many within the church uh, within my ward or even other settings where I've been in when I've said something that is out of the ordinary from what they've heard you can see they kind of take this approach that wait a minute where are you getting this did you read something critical about the church there's almost a distrust of new ideas. And then the third thing, which I think is the most important, I'm scared to death to go talk to, I remember, you know, before I was a bishop in my ward and, and who my bishop was, I was scared to death to go talk to him because I didn't want to open a can of worms for him. I knew that he didn't know the issues. And so if I go into his office and say, hey, you know, Bishop Jones, um, what do you make of Joseph Smith being married to a 14 year old? What do you make of Joseph being sealed to women who are already sealed to other men? What do you make of the book of Abraham? really having some deep problems with this Egyptian papyri. All I'm going to do is raise issues. It'd, it'd almost be like as if I took the CES letter and threw it on his desk and said, here, read this. Uh, I don't want to hurt someone else's testimony. And so, again, those of us with doubts who who have questions, who are struggling to put it together, often we remain silent. And if we do speak up, either A, it hurts the testimony of somebody else, or B, it's brushed off as being anti-Mormon propaganda that we got from some untrustworthy source. Okay. So you're talking about why it is that a person stays silent, but talk talk to me about the isolation that happens when you do stay silent. So it sucks because you've got nobody to talk to. You you go into your ward on Sunday, and these are people you love, right? I joined the church at 17. I love these people. I've been in the same ward since. Some of these people I have known since the day I got baptized, even before that. And, and I love these folks, and yet their understanding of the gospel, of the church, of its history, is completely different than mine. And because of the things that I've learned and discovered, I um, 
I've had to tear my entire belief system down and put it back together. And from the outside, if they're standing next to me and, and we're both looking at our two buildings of faith and belief, they're probably thinking on the outside that my building looks the exact same as theirs, but it looks completely different. So different um, that I worry that if I share with them that I'm going to be marginalized by them. Why, why risk if you're, if your testimony is so important to you, if the gospel is so important to you, why risk having somebody mess that up for you or change it for you? And so you feel alone. You, there's just no one to chat with. You go into church, you, you want to walk up and share your testimony, but you're afraid to because your testimony is different. You, you want to raise your hand in class and share an idea, but, but often people will meet that comment with resistance and make you feel even more alone for having shared it. And yet if you just say nothing, if you just remain silent, uh, that just eats you up from the inside out. Mm. Why? Because you've got so much to share and so much to talk about, so many things you're thinking about, so many questions you've got that are are causing this cognitive dissonance in you that, that to have somebody to lean on as a friend, somebody to put their arm around you would just be a giant blessing and yet it is it is deeply deeply difficult to find someone in your ward who both knows the problems, two is willing to talk about them, and three is willing to validate that from a honest perspective some of them really are problems. And so where do you go? You're 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 all by yourself. Yeah, all by yourself. So um you don't always stay silent. And uh, we know this because you know you admit to it in your episode. You said, sometimes I put the person in his or her place. I burn bridges. Can can you maybe give us an example of a time when you just couldn't stay silent anymore? Yeah, I can give a couple. Okay. I uh, And I've shared both these on the podcast. And, and today I kind of chuckle at them. But uh, one was our whole family. We... Instead of our home teacher coming to our house, it was just more convenient because of where his geographic location is and where my parents lived for us to go to his house to be home taught. And so our whole family is there being home taught by him. And he always seems to take the the Enzyme lesson. He'll read a couple of sentences out of it, and then he kind of takes it down a different tangent. And that day, his tangent was he, he made the comment that all resurrected beings will be white people. And here I am with my four kids, my wife. And, uh, and I'm listening to him say that. And of course I'm in complete disagreement. My wife is even in complete disagreement and she's a lot more, um, the term, I guess TBM, I hate that term, but she's a lot more TBM than I am. And, and so when the lesson was over, we get out in the car, our kids say, Hey, do we have to believe that? We say, no, we kind of straighten it out with them. But then when I get home, I shoot him like this two page email and I'm kind in it. I'm not like, you know, being a jerk, but I am laying out point by point why what he said is inaccurate. And while I don't think he's a racist, saying that is racist. And uh, he didn't talk to me for a while. He ended up going to the bishop's house and telling the bishop everything I told him. I think he was looking for the bishop to take his side, but the bishop looked at him and said, you know, I think Brother Real's right. And even after that, I called him a couple days later because I hadn't heard from him. And I wanted I didn't want to offend him, but I also wanted to make my point clear that from now on, if this is the kind of stuff you're going to teach, you better just stick to the basics when you're talking to my family. And uh, it's obvious from that day even till now, there's, there's still not quite the comfort that there was before because in some ways, I certainly reached out to correct him and to let him know that what he taught – at least to our family, was unacceptable. Um, while I certainly thought I did it with nice words, I certainly wasn't. I, I certainly wasn't soft words, if I can say it that way. And uh, 
And so that burned a bridge. I, I also had a time where somebody was joking around. They said, oh, you can't trust Brother Real. He doesn't wear a white shirt. And that just rubbed me the wrong way. And so I, uh, I kind of sent him a, a one page email letting him know that if he could find where that was official doctrine, I would welcome it, but I can't find it anywhere. And I shared with him some talks in the church that kind of disagreed with that. And, and just this past Sunday, I made another just thought to him about sharing something uh, from, from a historical standpoint. And uh, he said, Oh, aren't you a wealth of knowledge? And it was kind of a little snarky. And so as I, as I reach out to kind of make some space for myself and for others like me and try to be a voice that opens the door to some of this nuance. And sometimes I'm, I'm frustrated in a lesson. And so I just want to kind of bite back against the nonsense. I, I certainly do burn some bridges. Okay. So you talk about some, some discomfort, certainly. Is that as bad as it gets? You know, I mean, it sounds to me like the, 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 bur- the bridge isn't burnt. It's just a little bit more rickety. <laughs> it doesn't feel quite as safe, but I mean, you can still go talk to these people. It, it's, has, have there been, been any real big dramatic fallouts with people? You know, in that way, I guess no. So maybe using the word burning bridges is a, is a bad phrase to use. I, I certainly have people who now are less apt to want to hear me. They're less apt to want to uh, listen and seek out whether what I'm saying is is factual or not. They just see me as the guy who's always trying to stir out the pot in, in a lesson because anytime something goes off track, I'm, I'm trying to be a voice for myself and for others. So maybe I haven't burned bridges, but um, I, I've certainly cut some of the cables from them so they're not quite as safe to, to try and walk across. I don't mean to demean that. I mean that's that that's un, certainly an uncomfortable situation where you know if I go to church and these people with whom I felt I thought I had a, a strong relationship are maybe avoiding me or the the relationship's strained. That's no fun. But I I wanted to ask simply because I've been in wards and branches uh, where there was a huge falling out. It's the kind of stuff you read about in church uh, in early church history where you know half the ward's gone. Half the branch is gone, and so I, I wanted to know. No, I've never, I've never done. So, if you knew me, of course, obviously, doing things online and participating in discussion boards, everybody has a different feel for what another person's personality is. But in my ward, so, and again, I don't mean this as boastful, but I served as a bishop for almost five years, and and I loved these people. I, I went out of my way to serve them and to be kind and empathetic with their problems. And so I, I think on some level I've built up a, an, a, a capital that uh, that for the most part people know me and know who I am. So to burn the bridge completely, no, they're not going to you know hate my guts and and yell at me and never talk to me again. But in some ways they certainly have pulled back and are less likely to try and engage me in any kind of conversation. So. Getting back to your episode, you said that you want to be respected for the fact that you've done your due diligence. In fact, you, you've mentioned that. You've read everything that you can get your hands on. Uh, you've, and that there are tons of contradictions. You, meet, you, you mentioned different First Visions accounts and the Book of Abraham and polyandry, 11, uh, 11 other men's wives, non-virgin wives. You said, the, the questions I raise are valid. And I, I really felt, again, if, if I were transcribing what you said, I'd put an exclamation mark there. Yeah, there would be one because, because nobody, so, so even when I 
how can I put it? So I go into discussion boards sometimes and I will try to be a, a counter voice to the very conservative side of Mormonism. And even when I raise a good point, there's nobody there saying, Hey, that's a really valid point. That makes me stop and think a little bit. When I go into my ward and I say something, yes, there'll be three or four people who will come up after one of my sacrament talks and say, I really appreciate what you said. That had me thinking. I also, from my conversations with some, with the body language of some when I'm trying to talk with, I also realize that I make some very uncomfortable. It just seems like even from leadership in the church, from the top 15 on down, there's nobody, and I don't want to say nobody, I mean, there are people like Terrell Givens and Richard Bushman and Adam Miller and others, but there's nobody in my my line of authority who who's coming to me and saying, Brother Real, whether it be through a general conference talk, whether it be, you know, through my private correspondence with some people, whether it be my conversations with uh, with leaders in my ward and state, there's nobody coming to me and saying, you know, you raise a really valid issue that that doesn't have an easy answer. Nobody's there to really validate the the struggler, the doubter for the doubts. Everybody wants to brush his doubts off as, oh, you need to pray more and have more faith, or you need to read more scriptures, or the things you read are probably anti-Mormon lies. Or some people, I've even gotten the response of just absolute silence. I've, I've written some leaders just above me and asked if there's any way that I can be of help to those, uh, in the church who are struggling with doubts. And, and my emails or my conversations face to face with them are met with complete silence. There's nobody there to say, Hey, yeah, there's an issue. And it's, you know, it's a struggle and faith is not easy. And, uh, and your doubts in some ways are justified and, and the questions don't always have good answers. There's, there's, I should say very few. There's very few people out there who validate that. All right. Uh, let's explore that a little bit. So you raise, let's, let's say you move to, uh, an, another place and, uh, you're in a different stake and you send that letter to your new stake president. Or, you know, to high council, I don't know, right? But a leader who you feel is directly over you. Maybe you talk to your bishop about it. What would be the ideal validation that you, that, what, what would, what would be exactly what you'd like to hear? So I'll give an example. Recently, I sent an email to a leader, uh, whether it was ward or stake is not important, obviously, for this, but I sent a, an email to a leader and I shared with them, uh, the story about Elder Christofferson's brother, uh, Tom Christofferson, who happens to be gay, who is welcomed into his ward by his bishop and allowed to participate. He holds a, he, he serves in the choir. He, he helps out with things. He's there every week. They, they welcome him with open arms as much as they possibly can within the doctrine of the church. And in all wards and stakes, that kind of treatment doesn't happen. In fact, some leaders feeling like they have to choose between the church and this person will rush to a disciplinary council uh, for something such as homosexuality without really taking the individual circumstance kind of under its own. And so I sent this leader an email and said, hey, you know, here's a cool article. I just uh, read about how, you know, Elder Christofferson, one of the 12, his brother, who happens to be gay, how he's treated in his ward. Wouldn't it be awesome if all the the bishops knew about this way of approaching this as at least one viable option. Uh, that email was met with absolute silence. And, and other times in the past when I've emailed this leader, other leaders, I've gotten like a one-word response back, hey, thanks, or hey, thanks for sharing, and or thanks is be the only word on there. And uh, 
What would be a great response is if someone emailed me back and said, you know, Bishop, that's a really wonderful article. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I'm going to take this uh, under consideration and see if we can't find things from this that we could could implement and improve in our own ward or stake. And unfortunately, I've I've not found in my own area that to, to happen very much. And that would do it for you. That would. That's all it would take is someone to say, hey, what you raised is a is a way that another leader in the church is handling the situation. And so at the very least, maybe there's some room there for us to learn something from it that would be positive. So you at towards the end of your, your episode, you say to the church, you address the church. You say, own it. <laughs> own it. it. It's it sounded like you're kind of mad there, Bill. Who who are, who are you mad at? And if you don't like the label mad, you can change that to frustrated or, or whatever you, you want. But you weren't feeling positively. I think I'm, I feel pretty good about saying that. So, you know, who are you mad at? Is it President Monson? Is it local leaders? Is it all the general authorities? I mean, when you say the church, the church isn't doing this, or the church isn't doing that, who are you talking about? So I'm not going to sit here and name drop which apostles I think are are empathetic to my my perspective and which fine. ones are we yeah. won't, no, we won't do that no. that would that would be a, that wouldn't be fair but i will say this in the church we recognize in fact i've got a, a quote from leonard errington you mind if i read something no go ahead this this is your podcast so leonard errington says the prophet is not always a determining force in church government what we really have is a form of collective leadership consisting of the three members of the first presidency and the 12 members of the quorum of apostles this collective leadership has determined that they must be essentially unanimous despite the inevitably wide-ranging diversity of views the presiding quorums agreed early in church history to maintain a public posture of unanimity so as to minimize dissent in fictionalization within the general membership. If any particular person expresses a strong feeling about a particular matter, his views will normally prevail through the courtesy of others. And I've heard that in multiple places, that that sometimes members think Jesus shows up in the room every morning and, and tells the 15 men what they're to do for the day. But in reality, that happens so rarely that the majority of the time they're relying on, on this unanimous uh, cooperation on the part of all 15, that the things that they can all agree on are the things the church will move forward and do. So I'm not upset with any one leader. My frustration is that the church as a group leadership doesn't, and, I, and again, maybe I'm speaking out of turn, They, I don't feel like they do enough for people like me. Maybe, maybe half of them want to, maybe two-thirds of them want to. But when all 15 have to agree for something to get done... It just seems like it takes so much longer. You know, many of the critics of the church, many of the critics of the church like to say that the church is always reactive instead of proactive. And I think it's because of this point that until all 15 men are aboard on some idea, they're not going to do it. And hence, as a, as individuals, they likely have Christ-like love. They likely have empathy. They likely have love and concern. But because all 15 need to be in agreement on how they're going to handle my doubts and my struggles and the things I have questions about, those answers are slow and late in coming. And so there's my frustration. What do you feel needs to happen? I feel like you've kind of hinted at it, but uh, what, what, what are the types of things you'd like to see happen? Well, because of the main issue of them needing to be in an agreement to do anything, local leadership and even area authorities and whatnot, they, they come away with maybe a different perspective than any one of those apostles would would share. In other words, perhaps a 
Area 70 goes to a stake and says, you know, the brethren have been silent on this matter and hence this is, you know, the, the stance we take. And I've heard that several times, uh, in transcripts and people taking notes of various conferences throughout the church to the extent that because the 15 are not speaking out about the things I'm concerned about, other leaders take away from that maybe a stance that the church really doesn't hold. So what needs to happen is people need to speak up. Somebody needs to keep speaking the message. So for instance, President Uchtdorf says that the church has made mistakes that may have violated doctrine, practices, and, and culture. I think it would be another step forward to acknowledge perhaps what some of those are. As Elder Oak says, we don't, we're not in the business of apologizing or asking for apologies, but in some regards, we at least have to look back at our history and say, you know, if we were wrong about racist theories that are now disavowed that used to be doctrines and those theories hurt people, then the very least we can do is say we're sorry for that. The very least they can do is say, hey, you know, it, it wasn't because God had spoken and laid those things down. It's because we overstepped what God had said and we we took approaches that we thought were his mind and will, but they weren't. Um, I think another good positive would be to is ask people instead of following the prophet, following the prophet, to also have an equal balance of saying, hey, you know, a prophet is only a prophet when acting as such. And sometimes we get it wrong. And so we also need you to be responsible, to be in tune with the Holy Ghost, to know when we're speaking as a prophet and when we're not. I think putting that kind of personal responsibility back on the membership would be a huge step forward. I think uh, we need to keep moving forward with lesson manuals. I look at the Come Follow Me for the Youth Manual. Awesome. Let's get one in place for the adults. I know it's on the way. I know it's being worked on. Um, I expected it to be out a year or two ago. I think that it's going to probably wait for the, the next time we hit uh, the Doctrine and Covenants uh, from what I hear. But hopefully that's on the way and that's coming. Um, I think with the essays, I think we need to talk about the essays that came out more often. And the church needs to refer to them in conference talks and start making part of our language this discussion of some of the really difficult points. We don't need to sit there and hammer them. We don't need to talk about them at length to raise doubts in others, but at least validate for the doubter that you're, you're acknowledging that those things are out there. Um, and, and perhaps too help local leaders better understand that doubt is not a negative thing that as Elder Ballard said, doubt is not a, uh, and I'm going to paraphrase because I don't have his quote in front of me, but Elder Ballard says something along the lines of it, doubt is not inconsistent with uh, Christ-like discipleship. And so to make doubt okay, to make it okay that some out there have questions and they have doubts and the issues don't fit nicely for them, to essentially to validate them. Okay. Well, Bill, I just... That sounds great, by the way. <laughs> I think that's that's great. I, I really tried to hold off on 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 saying anything one way or the other. I just I want to throw something out there. And uh, when it comes to this idea of you know the brethren, the the, the church leadership make an announcement or uh, they ask us to do something and then we do it. I was thinking um, about well, how does that really happen? Because I was thinking, okay, so gosh, maybe. Th- 12, 13 years ago, uh, there was this announcement that said, uh, parents, please talk to your, your kids for less time when they're on a mission. You know, don't spend five, six hours on Mother's Day or Christmas. And uh, I, I was told this when I was uh, on my mission. Uh, and then my mom got 
really kind of bothered on it after I forget we had spoken for an hour or an hour and a half or something like that. And I said, okay, mom, well, I need to go. And she said, no. I said, well, you know, I'm just, I'm just trying to be obedient. Uh, they, they said we, we shouldn't be talking for, you know, like four or five, six hours. You said, really? I said, yeah. She said, I had no idea. Anyway, uh, she followed up on that. She found out that our bishop at the time, she asked our bishop at the time about that. And he got the letter and he purpose, he, he intentionally chose not to read it because he has six children and most of them served missions or a lot of them did. And he can't imagine having any restrictions like, or he couldn't imagine having any type of restriction, uh, like that. And so he just didn't read it to the ward. Uh, I can think of, a. Another time, President Hinckley asked us as a church not to have these big missionary farewells uh, where, you know, we invite a bunch of people in and then after sacrament meeting, the building clears out because some people are invited or a lot of people are invited to a special lunch or meal of some sort and then the rest of them are kind of sitting around not invited to the party. Uh, my experience, which has been in a couple of different states and in a couple of different countries, so it's, I've had some experience, but it's, it's not universal, but I've had some experience, but we, we've kind of blown, we blew President Hinckley off, <laughs> almost completely. I haven't seen any change in our church culture there. So, you know, do you think if the brethren said these things that they would necessarily happen? Well, how about if in conference the brethren would mention mormonsandgays.org, which has been out, I think, like three years now, is not linked to the church website. The church has chosen to to mention it so very little that that those who are unaware of the church's position don't even know the website exists. The only people who know about it are those who have been pointed there, uh, maybe because they are gay, maybe because they're a parent of a you know. But those who are unaware don't even know the site exists. I mean, they just they just don't know. And the church has made very little effort to to kind of uh, announce that that site is out there. So I think there are simple things they could do. I mean, I agree with you. Uh, there are lots of things the church puts out that, you know, they send them a, off. Oh yeah. If they send a letter to, right. When I was a bishop, I would get a letter every month from the first presidency on something. It might be something as little as go out there and vote. And it might've been some big idea that they wanted to have read from the pulpit that was, that was church related directly. And yet if you go back six months later and say, how many of you remember the letter on this idea? You know, very few members would even know that. So I don't think that sending letters out does it. Um, I, I think it has to be a general conference talk and I think it has to be taught to the 70s as they go out for state conferences and and teach the leadership uh, what it is that the the general authorities the uh, the first presidency and the quorum of the 12 want uh, the church to be paying attention to um, so no I think there's ways to do it I think there's other ways that we try that that don't work as well so you in your episode you said I was taught a specific narrative a specific story the story's changed significantly and that bothers me so uh, what would be a healthier healthier narrative? You talk a little bit about that in the episode, but I'd like you to expand on yeah, that. Yeah, let's let's make Joseph Smith a human being. Let's not hoist him up on uh, on some pedestal and and prepare to anoint him as the second heir to Jesus Christ, which I think Mormon culture does. We we have the song "Praise to the Man" uh, about Joseph Smith, and I certainly revere the restoration, revere what Joseph's given us, but we often look at John Taylor's section in the DNC where he talks about Joseph, you know, there's a name and a fame that cannot be slain. And we think of that as scripture, right? Here's, here's John Taylor talking about Joseph Smith and this is scripture. Jesus has done more or Joseph has done more for the salvation of men, uh, with the exception of Jesus Christ. Well, 
I wouldn't say that's doctrine. I don't think Heavenly Father, we have any example of Heavenly Father coming down and saying, Joseph Smith, you have done more for everyone on this earth except for Jesus. That, that's one person's opinion which has happened to have found its way into our canon. I think we need to lighten up on the pedestal we put Joseph on, that we need to, you know, we, we allow for prophets in a intellectually understood way to be fallible, to make mistakes. We talk about Moses killing an Egyptian, for instance, uh, Noah drinking alcohol. And we we kind of come to terms with that intellectually, but emotionally we don't. Emotionally, we kind of hold these men in such high regard that we really, when it comes to how we feel it in our heart, uh, many of us within the church don't see these men as imperfect as flawed and as perhaps even deeply flawed as, as God talks about, he, he takes the least of them and makes them the greatest. Uh, I think we need to take prophets down a notch and just say, hey, yes, we, we honor them. We respect them. They have a holy office, a holy mantle. They, they certainly, when, when, uh, called upon by our Father in heaven, speak his mind and will to the best of their ability, but they also make mistakes. They're also flawed. They also goof up from time to time. Some things in the church that we get that we think are truth, we come to find out they're not. I think that would be a huge first step uh, in kind of lowering the bar a little bit so that our expectations are not so high that they cannot be met as we delve into history and, and further investigate the church. Okay. What else would make for a healthier narrative about the church? Talk. So, so part of the problem with the, with the negative narrative is that we teach this simple idea that, you know, Joseph saw an angel and Joseph had a, a first vision with Heavenly Father and with Jesus Christ. And then he gets the plates and in the box of the plates is this Urim and Thummim. And he uses this to translate the Book of Mormon. And the words from the Book of Mormon are appearing in the Urim and Thummim as he translates. It, it's almost like we're so comfortable having easy, simple, answers to how everything happens that we leave no room for things to be messy when we find out that the facts don't quite match the story we're given. And so I think another healthy thing we can do is allow for more nuance. Teach, for instance, when we talk about the Book of Mormon translation, talk about the stone in the hat, number one. And it doesn't have to be just the stone in the hat. You can say, because it's just, you know, in a sense, this is true, we really aren't certain when and how much Joseph uses each of these methods. And then also maybe hitting on the idea that, hey, that we're not really sure about how the translation worked. It might have been a tight translation. It might have been a loose translation. It might have been a combination of the two. And that opens the door so that when we encounter the facts, when we encounter the deeper history, all of a sudden we go, oh, yeah, I wasn't really taught that that had to be that way. And there's lots more, I guess, leeway for us to kind of put things together in a way that fits best for us. Um, allow members to dissent. I know I just had an interview. It's not going to be on the podcast maybe by the time this one goes up, but I just had an interview with a, uh, a gentleman, Seth Bryant, uh, from the Community of Christ. In the Community of Christ, which is a, a break off of our, our church, uh, they share the same same history that we do. To a certain point. Uh, yeah, to a certain right. point, uh, up until Joseph Smith's death, right, essentially. Right. And they have a, uh, a document that is their guidelines for dissent. They've essentially written huh. out a way for the saints to disagree and to dissent with the church in a healthy way. And they draw lines, but they, but they do it in a way that every member is clear that they're allowed to ask questions. They're allowed to ask questions in this kind of a setting. They're allowed to, to ask tough questions. And only when they cross these two or three lines is it an issue. And, I think our church could use something like that. 
give the saints a, a really solid way of being able to both be faithful as well as holding their own perspective and disagreeing. Uh, Elder Christofferson, just with this conference uh, that just happened, uh, let's see here. In fact, I'm going to pause here for just a second and see if I've got it. Here it is. So Elder Christofferson, finally, I mean, this is, for me, this is the first time the church has addressed this. I know of Latter-day Saints who have had their temple recommend taken away because in the public arena, they have stood up for same-sex marriage. Not that they've asked for doctrine to change, not that they've asked for church leaders to accommodate uh, gay members, not that they've called out church leaders as being wrong, rather simply in the public sphere with the, the political issues outside the church, they stood for same-sex marriage and had their temple recommend taken away. And yet, for the first time ever, Elder Christofferson says this, he says, there hasn't been any litmus test or standard imposed that you couldn't support that if you want to support it. He says, if that's your belief and you think it's right, any Latter-day Saint can have a belief on either side of this issue. That's not uncommon. He said, problems arise only when a member makes a public, sustained opposition to the church itself or the church leaders and tries to draw others after them. And that support swells into advocacy. See, he he draws some lines that have never been drawn before. So now that's why it can be helpful to have two lawyers on the in the quorum of yes. twelve. <laughs> yes, in fact, both of them. This will be obviously way after the fact, but both of them are going to be on Trib Talk tomorrow, huh. and I'm interested in seeing what they're both going to say. Elder Christofferson and Elder Oaks. Mm-hmm. But yes, I think it's helpful if we give the saints a framework wherein they can disagree with the church in a healthy way and still be a faithful member of the church. And so those are some ideas of things I think the church could easily do. Well, I really like that, Bill. I, I, could, could I add maybe a couple of different things that I think would be wonderful Please. on top of that? Yes, absolutely. I think that in, in addition to teaching, you know, putting Joseph Smith in the same light as Moses or Abraham or Noah or Peter, frankly, because we've got... Peter acting out in the New Testament, getting into fights. We've got the the original 12 apostles vying for a a higher position uh, of esteem in, in the kingdom of God. And you've got Christ getting very frustrated with them for that. So I think we revere these people very much. And, you know, if you want to include the women, I think we, uh, we, we look at, um, Abraham's wife, Sarah, and you see the domestic squabbles, you know. So we revere all of these people, and yet, and yet, there's there, there's room for them to be very, very human. And I agree with you. I think that's a wonderful place to put Joseph. And what I would add to that, though, is just to say: so when you have a day where you're very imperfect, which is every day, but where, you know when you mess up big. And when you, you know, especially talking to the youth, but adults as well. So that, what, what I take from that is, when you mess up big, when you do something wrong, or when you see that, you know, you were going along in life, and, oh, you, you realize that you've been wrong about something, and you need to change, then that means that you can still be great, and you can, you're, you're still loved in the eyes of God, and that you, you can still go on to do wonderful things in this world, just like these people did. I think that's a one. I, I, I would love to put that narrative on, on and tack it on the side there. One of the most beautiful things I think that Joseph Smith did was say, come with me. You can receive revelation. You can receive the, the gifts of the Spirit. You can have gifts of the Spirit that I don't have. Uh, I, I love that idea. I've always loved that idea. And so I think, I think that th- this narrative fits beautifully into Mormonism. I'd, I'd like to hear more of it as well. 
Yeah, and let me add a couple other things. Uh, you mentioned women. Um, I know, and I don't, again, I don't mean to harp on this. I think it's just been the way history has unfolded. Men have always been in control of the narrative, and so the stories are primarily about men. They, you know, they have to do with, with the male side of what's going on in all of these, these gospel stories and events. We get very little bit of the, of the female narrative, and I, I don't want to look back, you know, as I'm on the other side of the veil and looking back, you know, 300 years from now, 500 years from now, and seeing where the church is at. I hope that we get to a point where we say, hey, this is still not a completely male narrative or at least a majority male narrative that we've allowed for women to have a place in our story. Uh, so I think that would be big. Uh, two other ones, okay. scripture. Yeah. Uh, scripture, we, we have – our testimonies are so based on historical facts, right? If you ask the average Mormon what makes up his testimony, it's that he knows that Joseph saw God the Father in Jesus Christ. He knows that – you know, the Book of Mormon is historically true, and, and he'll label all of these historical kinds of ideas as a litmus test for, for a testimony. I think it would be nice to kind of not necessarily abandon, but let go of historicity as a absolute for a real testimony. In other words, does the person who follows Jesus Christ and lives their life after the life of the Savior, but who holds the Book of Mormon as scripture, but not necessarily as historically true, is there still room for them in the church as a faithful member? And I think currently we kind of tolerate it, but it's really not, it's not really the allowed for and given space for. So one of the things I would do is just, and this is something the community of Christ has done as well, take historicity completely off the table. By that I mean this. No longer do we have to debate or have it as a fast of the church that the Book of Mormon is historically true. Not that it is or isn't. It doesn't matter. What's important is that scripture is, is the writings in a community that they value as sacred within their group. And that the Book of Mormon, the Bible, the Pearl of Great Price, those things draw us closer to the Savior. And so one of the things I shared uh, on Facebook a few weeks ago, maybe even just a week ago, I shared a little piece of my testimony. I said, whether the Book of Mormon is historically true or not, the Book of Mormon is still true in that it draws me to Christ. And so if I ever, I even put this in there, I said, if I ever left the church, I'm taking the Book of Mormon with me. It is part of what brings me closer to the Savior. And so I think sometimes, again, not that we're abandoning it, not that we're saying the book is not historically true, simply that we're giving those who don't take that stance enough room to be able to stay in and still be faithful participants. And um, and then the last one would be, and this to me is the biggest one, make room for doubt. Stop having knowledge and I knowing I know be the, the precipice of a testimony and recognize that having faith, the substance of things hoped for, but the evidence of which not seen, be absolutely as, and maybe even, because I think scripture gives merit to this, even more valuable than knowledge, if we read Alma 32, for instance. Um, I think allowing faith to be seen as just as valuable as knowledge, and even saying, even if someone doesn't have faith and all they can do is hope, that that is enough to be a faithful, worthy uh, member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So, Christer Stendhal is a Swedish theologian who is is pretty friendly to the LDS Church. And one of the one of the the things that he's talked about, uh, referring to interfaith dialogue, one of his key points is leaving room for holy envy, <laughs> leaving room for saying, "Oh, we don't have that in in my faith tradition or in my church, but boy, wouldn't it be nice if we did?" 
And so when, you, when you've been talking about how in the community of Christ they have some very defined roles for how you can dissent and what, wh- where is the line drawn, I think along the, it would be good for that. And I think it would be very healthy for us to feel as though we can have a voice and that we can feel heard by our leadership. And we don't always. And I, I remember being in, involved in a, a little thread on your Facebook page for this uh, you know, for Mormon discussions. And there was this, there was this sister there who, who educated me. And according to her, uh, the, uh, ordained women's movement never was able to gain an audience with any high church leadership. And I don't know if that's true or not, but from the way she was talking, I imagine it was. And I, I also know that there are, there are different times where people who have dissenting voices or voices that you could at least say they're unorthodox or they're not mainstream. They have gained an audience with uh, with high church leadership, and I I know that their time is limited, and I don't know exactly how this would would, would be done. But I think it would be a very very healthy thing in the church if there were a place, if there was some type of forum where we felt that we could gain access, if, if not gain access, at least feel like our voices are being heard by those who are in a position of authority in our church beyond the stake level. When it, you know, when it comes to stake things like how the building is used or, you know, uh, where girls' camp's going to be this year, things like that, there's no reason for us to bother the general authorities. But when it comes to these general issues, general policies and such that, you know, are the same whether I'm in Europe or Latin America or the U.S., I think it would be really wonderful and very beneficial for us as a whole church to feel that we had a voice. Let me ask you a question, Ryan. Would okay. that require then, would that require us to acknowledge, it's kind of twofold, right? So the church sees itself as a top-down leadership in that, it is a top-down leadership. If, yeah. yes, in that if answers are going to come, if new revelation is going to be received, it'll be received from the prophet on down. But the reality is that many inspired programs have come from the bottom yeah. up. No, here's the thing. There's certain revelation that's only going to come to certain people. It has to do with our, our doctrine or at least our knowledge of stewardships. So I'm I'm the ward uh, choir director, right? You know, there's only there's only certain revelation that I'm going to get. You know, the, the Lord isn't going to go to this random... That's, that's what we're taught in church, right? The Lord's not going to go to this random sister and say, I... When it comes to the revelation of how music is going to be in your ward, it's going to come through me and I'm going to tell you how to do it. No, uh, it, it comes to me. So I think there, when it comes to their stewardship, specific stewardships, yeah, there's, there's a revelation that only they're going to get. But yeah, when it comes to, going back to this idea of girls camp, girls camp's one of those ideas. It didn't come from the top down. Uh, family home evening didn't come from the top down. And, um, yeah, there, there, there are so many things that we don't realize that are really open to our receiving revelation. And I think that's our heritage and our birthright in the, in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And I agree, we don't focus on that enough. There, there are things we Yeah, so if we, if we allow kind of a recognition, a validation from the top 15, that, that ideas from the bottom up are welcome, that if you have a way of helping us complete the mission of the church more effectively that that voice is welcomed and i and i don't know that everyone feels that at the moment the the other thing i would say too is that well, there's no formal we have, way, there's no formal avenue there's no formal way for us to do that 
Right. And for me to send an email to Elder Holland, for instance, which I have done before, it almost seems like I'm pushing uh, the line a little bit, yeah, right? Yeah, rolling right? the what dice. What right do I have? Oh, yeah, and then there's that. Mm-hmm. Sure. Right. So so the other thing kind of goes parcel and post with this, which is this cultural attitude that we have either, A, all the truth, which we which we don't, but then also to say – that not only do we not have all the truth, but we do recognize that any truth that's out there we have. And I think we have to get away from that. We have to be able to recognize, as you're pointing out with this, with this, uh, this Swedish, uh, gentleman that you mentioned, that essentially recognizing that there are others outside of our faith who have truth in some form, shape that, that we could be envious of and to say, Hey, you know what? There may be truth outside the borders of our church. And that we welcome the opportunity to look at others outside of our faith. And if they're doing something really well that we're not, then let's look into trying to figure out what truth is there that we could grasp, adapt, and uh, implement. And you know that though it would sound like maybe a wild idea to some members of the church, that's totally within our doctrine. What you just proposed is totally within our doctrine. It's within our history. That's uh, While it may sound strange to some uh, there's there's an enormous amount of precedent for that, especially in the beginning of the church, but not only in the beginning of the church. Yeah, Joseph Smith said Mormonism is truth. What he meant by that was, regardless of where it is, the goal of Mormonism is to take that truth and to make it part of its own. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. We uh, we embrace truth from wherever it comes because we believe that the the ultimate source of truth is our Heavenly Father. And he makes the sun to shine down upon the good and bad alike. And I'm blowing the uh, the, the exact quotation, but you know, that's that's in the New Testament. Christ said that the sun shines on the good and bad alike, and the rain falls on the good and bad alike. Uh, wonderful. All right, so as a final uh, question, or I'd like to bring up just as a final question. You said, even though you've, you've gone through all this pain, even though you have bad days... You say, I wouldn't change where I am for anything. It's tough and messy, but it's beautiful. So being a devout stage three believer, I think, is in general, can be a very comfortable thing. And you've said some very stage four things uh, during this interview, you know, acknowledging the limits of your faith tradition and your ideology and your religion, uh, seeing imperfections. If you could, you so you're saying if you if you could go back to a simpler, more black and white stage three belief, you wouldn't do it in spite of the pain. So how is this faith transition transition beautiful to you? It's going to sound perhaps again offensive. I think if someone's listening to this and they're in stage three, they're gonna they're gonna scream at me and want to shake me to death. But in some ways, my faith used to be very naive. And I think if we study Fowler, for instance, and I'll use him as an example, I think this is true in any of these these behavioral development theories, um, but generally as one progresses through these theories, as one moves forward from one stage to another, one gets to the place where one no longer seeks to to be, um, I don't want to say self-centered. They, they seek to deal with the world outside of themselves. Uh, I think stage three very much, uh, the authority is located in another person, but their actions are still kind of to bring praise and recognition to themselves. And 
as one goes into stage four and specifically in stage five, which I'm not saying I'm in stage five, but I do think I've got at least a tiptoe in. Um, I think stage five involves a lot more of setting yourself aside and trying to help society at large, no matter what the cost for yourself, whatever those are. And in stage three, life is beautiful. Man, is it gorgeous. And things are simple and things fit together just so well. And Sundays were so, so comfortable and they just fit. And, and, and I, and I, again, I don't mean this boastfully, but in that stage three, I, I felt like, man, the whole ward thinks I'm awesome. Here I am. I'm a convert to the church and I'm just moving through all these callings and, and I'm serving everywhere. Now I've been called to serve as a bishop. It was a very, um, it was a very almost arrogant, way of interacting with the world. And while it is messier now, while it is full of angst and turmoil at times and heartache, um, I, my eyes are open and I see the world and I see people outside of myself who are struggling, who I can help. Uh, I'm aware of, of different groups, whether it be the Liahona Foundation and they're trying to feed uh, hungry Latter-day Saint children in third world countries, whether it's uh, some of the work being done in Utah to help those uh, gay youth who are homeless. Uh, there's just so many causes out there. And I think I think one really has to step into stage four and maybe even tiptoe into a little bit of stage five before one can step outside themselves and begin to to see how much good they can really do in the world uh, and again, with your eyes open, I think you can do that. And and I'm grateful that my eyes are open. I'm grateful that I, I see the world um, the way it is. I'm grateful, as Elder Bednar said, see things as they really are. Yeah, I, I really look at these at this this development of faith as being a net positive. Uh, I used to look at stage four belief as being a negative thing kind of a phase that you just need to get through as quickly as possible. And I don't anymore. And I think it fits very, very nicely and it makes sense because in stages four, five, and six, the person who determines, you know, behavior and belief and action is the individual. And I think it has to be that way. And when I look at Mormon theology and I look at the the teachings of the church, that fits, that I can only come unto Christ if I really want to. And there's no way that I can really want to unless I'm given the option not to. And I'm just going with the crowd. If I'm just going along with the crowd, as you said, that's naive. And that's that's not really coming to Christ because I want to. Maybe I feel like I do at the moment. But you have to at least get into stage four to say, no, I really want to. I, I see the limits. I see the warts. And I want to. And, and something that I, I found myself teaching uh, people at church, because it's a, it's a beautiful truth that I've found, is, uh, so going back to your marriage analogy, if my wife never gives me a really good reason not to love her, then my love is also immature. And I'm not really exercising agency. It's not really much of a choice if I've got this beautiful, wonderful woman who always thinks I'm wonderful and never does anything ever to annoy me or offend me. You know, how much of a choice is that? How much am I exercising my agency there? Not much. But when I come to this beautiful, wonderful, fabulous person who is also deeply flawed, as I'm deeply flawed, then and only then can I choose to love her because I have a reason not to. But I choose to. And that idea, Bill, I think is so empowering. Yeah, I'll tell you what. I agree 
very much what you just said. In fact, before you mentioned the whole uh, marriage thing, I was thinking about the same idea, and you mentioned earlier about that first year of marriage, kind of like laughing about it, like, hey, we really can't count that. And in that first year of marriage, it's just, just things are perfect, right? And so if you have the perfect spouse and you say, oh, I love her, she's just so perfect, that, like you say, really isn't real love. Real love comes in when you see the weakness, the flaws, the imperfections, and you choose to embrace it and to to hold it close to you anyway. Uh, I think I think you hit a nail on the head with that analogy. It, it may sound it may sound silly to say you can't be in stage five without going through stage four. Like, duh, that's common sense. That's the way they work. But I don't think you can really grasp the embracing and reconciliation of stage five until you've gone through the frustration and angst and disappointment of stage four. And so while yes, you know, all the stage theorists are certainly saying you have to, you can't skip a stage. You have to go through each of them. I I think it's more than that. I think stage four sets you up to be able to live stage five authentically and to really be someone who a, certainly sees the world different than stage three, but can relate to them as if you're, you know, the, the stage three person talking to the stage five person would barely know there's a difference because they've, they figured out through stage four how to get back to a place to, to be part of the group, to certainly be faithful, even though their view and perspective of the divine may be very different. You know, it's, it's, in my own personal scripture study, I've been I've been going back to the the, the very first story of Genesis, you know, uh, well after the creation, so the fall, and in a way, it's almost like it's a personal fall, right? Stage four is eating the fruit, <laughs> you know. Yeah. It's it's, yeah, it's your eyes are your open. eyes are opened, and yet I think one of the coolest things we've got in scripture is is from Eve, where she very wisely says. You know, this is good. This is a net good. Getting kicked out of the Garden of Eden and having to provide for ourselves and, and having all of these nasty realities of mortal life is a net good for us. Because now we're in the end, because of the Savior, we're going to be able to be more like our Heavenly Father. We're going to have knowledge and use that knowledge. And I think the implication is and use that knowledge for good like he does. And you got to eat the fruit to do that. <laughs> Only now do I know good from evil. Yeah. And so, Bill, I got to say, participating in this podcast is a wonderful thing for me. Uh, If you're in my ward, you'd be welcomed by me. I'll just say that. And I want to say out to the listeners, going through this stage of doubt does not make make you evil and seeing the limitations of, of your faith tradition and maybe some of the things that you've been taught... It's not make you evil, and there, there, there's good to be gained from this. There's a lot of good, and there's a lot of joy that's to be gained from this ultimately. Amen. All right, Bill, thanks for the opportunity. Folks, thanks for your patience. This is the first interview I've done, but uh, hey, we got to listen to Bill talk about a lot of really great things. Yeah, and from both of us, may the Lord warm your shoulders, right? May the Lord warm your shoulders.
Please go.